Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. With all the talk about Division I undergoing massive transformation, which we should hear about any day now, what is actually going on in NCAA Divisions II and III? According to my guest, Chuck Metrano, the longtime commissioner of the Empire Eight Conference in New York, quite a bit. Chuck joins the conversation from two perspectives, one as a sitting commissioner and one as a member of the NCAA Championships Committee, which provides oversight for all 28 postseason events. In both positions, he interacts with both presidents and NCAA staff. We cover a wide range of topics on the future of Vision 3 and discuss the Empire 8's substantive proposal on mental health safety nets for athletes on campus. We also discuss what happened in January of 2022 at the NCAA convention. At that time, the NCAA reverted back to the one school, one vote rules that were eliminated in the late 1990s. A huge opportunity for Division III to influence the direction of NCAA policy as they have more than 450 schools. Chuck walks us through why that happened, and in particular, the discussions surrounding increasing the amount of money Division III currently receives from the CBS Turner March Madness contract, which is currently at 3.18% of that total contract. This does impact how Division III championships are funded and managed. Chuck brings deep experience to the conversation while overseeing a conference that has as many as 15 schools both full and associate. Chuck, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Karen. Thanks so much for having me. It really is an honor to spend some time with you. Well, I'm glad to have you because I think, uh, you know, we certainly heard a lot about transformation in Division One, and everybody's hanging on August 1st and what the committee might announce. There's been some leaks but there's been very little discussion about transformation in Division Three, And I know you've been involved in this. So give us an overview of where Division Three fits in within this era of transformation. We think about the significant changes that might happen in Division One. What are some of the transformative ideas coming out of Division Three? Yeah, you know, the, the concepts being discussed in Division Three are not as uh, substantial as those being discussed in Division One. It's, you know, obviously a, a different model, so to speak, uh, with a lot more uh, resources tied up into it. Um, but those changes could certainly have effect on us, right? Um, if they're looking to use less services from Division One, um, you know, we are able to leverage those individuals now to help service our needs. So, you know, that that is one of those things that we're kind of monitoring to see how is this going to affect the national office staffing hmm. and therefore how would that affect our services? Because uh, we rely on them for, you know, quite a bit of stuff. Um, right, right. Just give us a couple examples of, of the ways Division Three utilizes the national office. Um, certainly with, you know, eligibility, uh, with enforcement, um, a, a lot with interpretations, um, you know, a lot of those things which you know, Division One is now looking at potentially having done in-house. Um, you know, so that would certainly, um, you're talking about academic and membership affairs staff, you know, and what that might look like through a transition period. Um, so yeah, you know, those are things that are important for us to continue to monitor. Um, but, 
in, certain, in terms of the things that we're looking at within our division, you know, increasing the student athlete voice. Mm -hmm. um, we've added two uh, SAC reps to the uh, President's Council. And that's, that's a, the student athlete advisory committee. SAC is the acronym. Yeah. 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 I apologize. Yeah. And that's really important because they, um, it really is vital. If we've learned anything over the past three years with this boom of support of the student athlete and the student athlete voice and providing platforms, um, that really is an appropriate thing for us to do in our division to make sure that the student athlete perspective is, is understood and respected and their voice is heard. Um, so that's really important. Um, one area that we really looked at quite a bit as a division is just sort of how we have our representation on committees. Um, so for instance, on the Division Three President's Council, um, every rotation, so once every four years, your conference will have a representative on the President's Council. Um, and that's vitally important because that's the, you know, most influential uh, structure within our within our division. Um, but there isn't anything that sort of feeds into that with management council. So there's no such requirement, you know, for, for instance, for the Empire 8, um, we haven't had anybody on the management council since I've been in this position 22 years. Wow. And that is where a lot of the work gets done. Um, so, you know, we have uh, uh, the, the advisory group have, has looked at ways that they could change that. Um, so I know the representation is going to be coming, but we've also put forward a proposal that we would alternate seats. So when you're not, when you don't have a conference seat on management council, you'll have it on president's council and vice versa. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I think that's part of, you know, sort of modernizing our division, you know, 25 years ago, it, it was smaller. There were certainly fewer conferences. And we looked primarily at geography as a means to identify representation. Yeah. And now with the boom that we've had and where we are, this probably is going to be a more appropriate sort of structure, making sure that there's representation. Well, let's dive into that a little bit. So there's over 450 schools in Division Three, which is you think about division one, there's about 300 and 330 division one. So this is by far the largest division collection of schools in the NCAA. How many conferences are there in division three? 43 conferences. 43. Okay. Wow. So that's, if you, if you tried to have representation on the board with each of those conferences already, you'd have 43 people sitting at the table. Right. <laughs> So and that's that is challenging. Yeah, yeah. It, it is the challenge of having such a large and diverse group. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's also something to be said, because when you look at a lot of the votes for these proposals that come before the, the, the convention, they're usually, you know, a pretty strong support or opposition. Everybody seems to be in the same mindset. Interesting. Um, relatively speaking, again, for a group of over 450 institutions. So, you know, it, it is unique. It is a challenge, but we, we do have to make sure that, you know, everyone has that voice and, and that ability. It's such a contrast to Division One, right? Division One has the Power Five. It has the mid-majors. It has the basketball centrics. It has all these different classifications and everybody's got their own agenda. Yeah. It sounds like what you're saying in Division Three is that we're all pretty darn consistent about where where we think our priorities lie. Yeah, absolutely. By and large, that's why they're really, you know, when it comes to sort of 
the evolution of division three, it's a little more subtle, you know, than it is in division one, um, because we, we do share those values and those philosophies. Now, the question is, how much has that changed over the past 20 some odd years? Um, you know, we have a working group that is going to review the philosophy. And, you know, I, I look at it as we really do need to modernize what we do to reflect how our institutions have modernized. Right, right. Completely different. Completely different. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about something that happened in January that was really kind of unusual. Um, the Division Three membership had an unusual opportunity to cast a vote, one school, one vote in the NCAA structure in 19, late 1990s, I think, they took away the one school, one vote and, and allowed conferences to, to federate or divisions to federate. So at that moment in time though, they reverted back to that because of revenue distribution. Can you talk about the amount of money that division three receives from March Madness, why that vote was so critical and maybe even some of the folks who were quite adamant that it should change? Yeah, it, it was unique and it was historic and it was, you know, you could feel that being in the room, you know, that day. Um, and I was also pleased to see that there was quite a bit of discussion um, from Division Three and some from Division Two as well, mm -hmm. you know, around the things that we were voting on and talking about, um, you know, to it, it was a Herculean effort. If you look at the time frame where we were asked to create a brand new constitution and get it passed, um, you know, it, it's very hard to say you can't get something done when you see something like that was accomplished. So, I mean, that's that's the positive. Um, you know, in Division Three, we received three point one eight percent of the uh, Turner contract. It's thirty five point one million. Um, and you know, there were certainly discussions uh, with the advisory groups leading up, you know, of potentially making some adjustments to those allocations. Um, you know, it, it may have been more of, you know, hey, this is the growth that we've seen, you know, in our division since this time. Um, and unfortunately, they were not able to negotiate any of that to the point where we were able to change that. Um, but that remains an option, you know, moving forward. We could always make that request. Um, and I do believe that, you know, there are going to be, you know, folks within our division that will be looking to, to try that. Uh, to try to, to do that potentially. Um, but th the great thing is, is that we are really, in Division Three. we're very fiscally responsible with the funds we receive and we're very efficient with them. We, you know, we do a lot of great things with that money and, and we're certainly appreciative of that. 75% um, goes to our championships, to conducting our championships, then 25% go towards enrichment initiatives. And I mean, those are, massive. I mean, the amount of programming that our institutions and our conferences are able to do with that funding is, um, you know, w without that, we wouldn't be able to do a third of what we do. Um, it's just really critical funding that's been uh, helpful for us in terms of the educational role within athletics. Give us an example of an enrichment program that you guys do really well. Yeah. So, um, Within the enrichment fund, there are um, programs that go towards um, uh, uh, diversity and, and inclusion. Um, I think there's about 3 million that we use directly for those types of programs. 
Um, and then the conferences receive some funding um, to take to sort of distribute at the local level. Um, you know, the, the 3.2 million that we use for diversity and equity uh, funding at the national level is available to everybody, but, you know, very small number of institutions receive those on an annual basis. Um, and about 10 years ago, they started uh, providing the conferences with this grant funding because we're equipped to handle it more efficiently than they can and would also maximize the dollars to get to more institutions. So one of the things that we do in the Empire 8 is we do a, a leadership summit with our student athletes on an annual basis. So we bring a group of, of uh, student athletes from each institution together for a three-day weekend. You know, we put them in a nice hotel, good food. They're happy with that. Um, and we do a lot of educational programming and, and, you know, really good like town hall type discussions. We bring in professional speakers. Um, we challenge them to create action plans so that they can, you know, make some changes on their campus. Right. And, you know, that's, that's usually like twenty three, twenty four thousand dollars $24,000. But invariably, every student athlete that attends says that was the best experience that they had. That's great. And so, um, you know, we're developing leaders, you know, we're nurturing them and we're challenging them. Um, so, yeah, that's that's one program that we do specifically with that funding that is uh, just incredible. Um Within the Division Three structure, how do the how do the monies trickle down? Do they trickle down equally to every conference? You know, in Division One, there's different allocations based on units and things like that. In Division Three, does does the Empire Eight get the same as NESCAC and some of the other conferences? Yeah. Yeah, they have a formula where it is equitable based on the number of institutions that you have. Okay. Um, so you know, uh, we have ten. You know, some have twelve, some have eight. Um, so depending on what we, we sponsor, that's the amount that we get. And, and every institution with the same sponsorship receives those same dollars. So it is equitable. Okay, that makes sense. And, and so the conference then decides if any of it's going to filter down to the schools individually, like if the school's running a very unique program, you could re redirect some of those funds to the schools, right? Absolutely. Yeah. There's, um, you know, there's various tiers. So like tier one is specifically for professional development. Uh, opportunities for administrators, coaches, um, right. you know, some of that goes to our student athlete advisory committee as well. Um, tier two is around some of the philosophical or value programming. Um, that's where we use our summit funding. So, you know, we'll, we'll pick a topic or two on a given year, bring in a speaker to focus on that. And then the third tier has a lot more flexibility. It could be for anything from branding and technology, um, you know, a lot of our institutions apply for that where we can upgrade their video streaming capability right. or, you know, some of the recruiting tools they may use or even, you know, equipment for their athletic training room, um, yeah. you know, AEDs, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, we have a process and a, a policy that institutions go through to, uh, you know, to request that funding and, and uh, a matrix to sort of determine how it is that we award that. But uh, the vast majority of it goes, you know, directly to institutions. Yeah, that, that's great. So your committee, the strategic uh, planning committee worked on some recommendations, I think that are going to the president's council in early August. You talked about <clears throat> strengthening the championship initiatives that include per diem increases in all sports, 
reimbursement for local ground transportation, a day of rest for selected sports, and the expansion of some brackets and travel parties. Talk to us about why those things were necessary. Um, so I'm fortunate to chair the championships committee at this particular time in, in our history. And um, that's how I was placed onto the strategic planning and finance committee. Um, and so, you know, we were looking at our budget um, and then also simultaneously seeing how the expenses have increased with inflation and, and you know, just some of the, some of the costs associated with that. Um, we know we can never fully fund championships um, and institutions don't expect that. Um, but at the same time, you know, seeing that we, we weren't able to really, you know, having experienced COVID, we, we had to level out and even cut budget. Yeah. Um, and then um, to see how the economy has changed in the recent year to two years, we knew it was necessary for us to, to make that commitment with increased per diem. Um, so that will be a relief for institutions that, you know, advance into the NCAAs. Um, the day of rest um, is important in that it, it made us equitable um, across sports. So some sports had one already, some did not. Um, you know, as a committee, we looked at it and we decided, um, well, we could, you know, look at this as a means of which sports really need a day of rest, you know, which ones are the most physically taxing etc. Um, but as we ran through the numbers, um, you know, it was not a large ticket item at all. Um, and so we felt, you know what, let's provide the equity and uh, make it across the board. So, um, you know, that was a really positive thing that the membership was excited about. Yeah, because a school that hosts a championship incurs a lot of costs that it absorbs. And I've always, you know, being a coach and an athletic director, I see how hard the staff on site works. And that's generally um, not part of their compensation. It's just other duties as assigned, right? right. The old adage. So it, it's good to give the teams that are traveling who are spending the money to get there a chance to also better support their athletes. As a former coach, I'm a huge fan of the day off. I just think that makes so much sense because you don't ask teams in many sports to play back to back during the right. season, but then you're asking them to do it at the most important time of the year. It just, right. it just didn't make sense. So yeah. I think that that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. You really want them to have their best opportunity then, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, right. that's the pinnacle of where they've, you know, been aiming to get to and, you know, to have them compete in, in less than, you know, rested shape. I um, mean, you know, sometimes it's less than 24 hours turnaround. So, um, you know, we wanted to make sure to, you know, provide that opportunity. So we were, we were really happy to do that. And you also talked about expanding some of the brackets in some of the sports and some of the travel parties. So any, any examples of, of what sports those might be? Yeah, so I believe uh, women's ice hockey was one of those sports. Um, we typically, you know, we project out, we, we track on who's adding a sport and what year they're adding it, and then we'll respond to what the membership level is. Um, the, the tricky part comes in where if you have an odd number bracket, it, it can really mess things up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have to put a playing game somewhere, you might have to add a day of competition. And so, um, Fortunately for a sport like women's hockey, which is small, um, we have more flexibility. So they were actually going to be on an odd number, um, but we felt this doesn't add 
any more time to the to the championship itself. It doesn't add add a week of competition, um, and it reflects their their appropriate ratio. So we felt it was appropriate to go ahead and make that uh, opportunity for them. So let's talk a little bit about this mental health proposal that that the Empire Eight is sponsoring, and and I've read through it and. I'll just read a couple of the paragraphs. It says, whereas individuals who may be suffering with a mental health condition often do not seek immediate support, the medical documentation for a mental health hardship waiver should not be required to be contemporaneous and must provide appropriate flexibility to support a student athlete in retaining their season of eligibility. Institutions commit substantial resources to support its students with mental health Appropriate medical documentation should not be limited to a physician as it is for a physical injury. Let's talk a little bit about that. That's kind of interesting language. Yeah, it's something I'm really passionate about. And, um, you know, I was really surprised to, to, to learn that um, Division One and Division Two hadn't taken a step in this direction. So when you talk right now, we have hardship waivers um, and mental health is included in that. But the requirements, when you think about how unique mental health conditions are, and again, student athletes will go through them and not seek help immediately. Right. Um, and they could struggle the entire season. And the, you know, the the criteria for, for a hardship waiver is it has to be contemporaneous. And that in and of itself is just a massive gap when it comes to a mental health hardship waiver. So our resolution is to create. Uh, a mental health hardship waiver as its own opportunity and make sure that the medical documentation that would be required to affirm that is not as substantial as it is for a physical injury. So give us an example. How, how would it work? I'm a student athlete experiencing some sort of mental health crisis. What would I need to know about to be able to, to kind of start the process to make sure that my eligibility is protected? Yeah, I think the most important thing is not even there weren't a lot of administrators and certainly not a lot of coaches that were even aware that you can get a hardship waiver for mental health conditions. So that's part of the problem. Um, so creating it as its own and bringing the spotlight more firmly on this is going to certainly allow those that are in a position of care of student athletes to be more observant and be more sensitive to those issues. Um, so, you know, you would think that, um, you know, a coach, an assistant coach, athletic trainers who, you know, tend to be one of those groups where they hear about everything, you know, the kids come in, they talk to them about everything. They talk to each other about everything. Um, you know, and that provides opportunity for engagement with the student athletes to talk about, Hey, you're struggling. You don't feel like you have to have this tank that's full. You can play with half a tank. Come to practice a couple times a week, do what's best for your mental health, and you will not lose your eligibility. Um, it, it, it's just very difficult because the lack of knowledge, a lot of students won't even play that season because they just feel like it would be too overwhelming. Interesting. Um, and some will play, but they will, you know, they will allow it to overtake them. And that just makes the condition worse. Um, and for those that don't, you know, who, who opt not to participate, we're we're stripping them of those important resources. Sure. Yeah. You know, someone who has anxiety or someone who has depression, that out, that sport is their outlet. 
to help with that mental health condition, their team, that support that comes from the team and the coach, um, that's a family unit for them. And so to suddenly say you can't have contact with that family unit, um, it's just counterproductive to mental health. So um, <clears throat> walk us through, if, if I'm an athlete uh, today that goes to practice, says to my athletic trainer, I'm just not feeling right. I've got this issue, that issue, I feel overwhelmed. How would the trainer, athletic trainer, then let the coach know, let the administrators know so that that you know, uh, process is, is covered? But And you've got HIPAA, and you've got right. FERPA, and you've got all these other regulations. So how would yeah. that yeah, that's where the the you know the professionals uh, within the NCAA's mental health working group will will be able to direct us uh, in terms of what would be appropriate, what wouldn't be appropriate. Um, you know, certainly when a student athlete expresses those types of feelings, um, the hope is that the coach number one is directing them to campus resources so that they can start to you know work on that um, because not not all do and very again even to get to the point where you express that to a coach, right? that's an intimidating thing. Very much and so, so yes. I, you know, I think it's important for, you know, presidents, uh, athletic direct reports and athletic directors to make sure that this is an emphasis in their campus, in their athletics department, um, that coaches cannot be uh, abrasive towards those that express these feelings and, and that they need to create a culture where we want you to talk to us. We want you to come to us with this so that we can support you. Um, and it has to be consistent every year. They have to emphasize it. Um, you know, I think that's also where campus student athlete advisory committees can play a huge role um, because it's peer to peer and they can talk about their needs on their teams and they can develop department wide needs and really, you know, advance, you know, the support for mental health. Uh, within athletics, but um, it, there's so many prongs to it, as you know. Yeah. Um, but that is one of the things where, you know, COVID certainly was a challenge for everybody. Um, athletics is no different from that. Um, it it exacerbated things. You know, if you were struggling financially, this expedited that financial challenge, and it exposed a lot of areas where, you know, we're not as strong as we thought we were, and. This is one of the benefits of this is that seeing how substantial mental health is for student athletes and for students on campus. Um, it really was not that common to, you know, to talk about mental health the way that we're talking about it now. So it's really advanced it and put a spotlight on it. And so, you know, ultimately I think it's going to be one of those really positive things that, that come from an unfortunate, you know, circumstance with the pandemic. Well, it's certainly going to take a lot of education, not just for the athletes, but for the coaches, the direct reports, the presidents to understand how to ensure that what they think is happening is actually happening on their campus. And even just having quality control checks along the way, periodically looking at a case and saying, okay, did we serve the athlete well throughout this, this whole process and being open to improvement, uh, you know, and having a continuous improvement mindset. And this seems to be really important. Yeah, you know, I think it's important. Um, you know, I liken this to one of my passions is, is sportsmanship, education, leadership. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that you have to make sure is deliverable and, and that there's some way that you can determine how successful a coach and a team and a department is or is not doing it. So, you know, as a president or as an athletics director report, 
you know, those are things that need to be part of their evaluation, you know, so that there's goals established for them on an annual basis. There's assessment uh, for those tools that are in place on an annual basis. And it can't just be, well, we have this resource in place. It has to be, how are we leveraging that resource? Are we publicizing the resource? What are we doing to make sure that the athletes are aware of the resource? Um, and then same for the coach. The coach has to have that official accountability because it, it can't just, you know, be said, this is what we're about, but then there's no, you know, you don't show up to, when you were a coach at Salisbury, you didn't show up to practice without a plan, right? You had a plan and you, that, that ensured that you had success. And so, you know, in these same areas, there has to be a plan and it has to be intentional. Yeah, and, and valued in the process, right? Absolutely. Just as much as wins and losses and, and graduating and all those kinds of things. It has to be of significant value to the institution. Absolutely. Yeah, and this is one of those things, too, where, you know, there's a lot of silos on campuses. And, you know, one of the sort of knocks with athletics has always been they're in their own silo and they're not part of the campus community. And, you know, I, I think in Division Three we do a really good job with this. Yeah. But this is another example of how we can cross campus resources. You know, athletics can work with counseling and they can work with the, you know, the medical folks on campus to do a broad-based plan um, and to utilize those resources. So, um, you know, there's just so many benefits to, to these types of programs. Yeah, it makes sense. So <clears throat> wrapping up our podcast a little bit, a couple of things have stood out to me that I've been wanting to ask you. The, the President's Council agreed to a comprehensive review of Division III's philosophy statement during this transformational period. Can you walk us through where the division is with that work right now? Yeah, we're really in the infancy. So we were, um, the Strategic Planning and Finance Committee is being charged with that review. Um, and they just assembled a subcommittee that will do the work. Um, so it will be a year-long process where that subcommittee will um, begin to meet and evaluate the philosophy statement, um, propose changes to the SPFC, and then I would suspect sometime, uh, you know, this time next year, they'll be done with that work with potentially a uh, uh, proposal for the 24 convention <laughs> to, to officially make any changes that they may have. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I was wondering, because it seems like everybody's focused on August 1st, but that's a Division One deadline. And there's already been a very active working group there, you know, yeah. floating some trial balloons out there and that type of thing. So I hadn't heard much about Division Three. Another question I want to get your thoughts on is where is Division Three when it comes to conference realignment and automatic qualifiers? Has that shifted at all recently? Oh, boy. Um... <laughs> This has been something where, you know, it's, it's a source of constant time and attention, um, trying to assess what other divisions are doing, trying to assess what other conferences within your division are doing, what institutions are doing. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things that uh, literally it's on every single agenda we have at every single level of our structure. And um, it, it's important because you, you want to be stable for the short term and viable for the long term. And, uh, you know, a lot of that is driven by the automatic qualifier and how much stability you can provide to your institutions. Um, so there's, you know, there's always been this loop of 
evolution and change among conferences in Division Three. You know, I think we've we've lost four members and we've picked up five members in the 22 years that I've been here. Um, and there was a heck of a lot of discussion with many other institutions in between. So, um, but one of the things that we did as a conference, um, you know, just seeing how much this is changing and what the merry-go-round has been like, um, we're all doing it because of the AQ and we're, we're sort of letting that dictate to us, you know, how we select institutions. And uh, our minimum for automatic qualifier was seven teams. Um, and we had a proposal last year to change that to six and basically say, hey, let's provide everybody a little bit more stability so that we don't have to go around chasing, you know, and, and picking institutions from other conferences um, just to meet this number that nobody knows why it's seven. Um, and so fortunately that passed. And so I think that's been a very positive thing that will help us all sort of become a little more stable, a little more comfortable, but more importantly, retain, you know, quality experiences for the student athletes. That makes sense. I mean, you're right. Uh, it feels like in the Northeast and mid-Atlantic part of the country, there's been an incredible amount of conference realignment in Division Three in the last 10 years. I feel like, okay, I'll, I'll read something in there for a school from such and such a conference. I'm like, what is that conference? I've never heard of that one before, you know? Yeah. And, and some of it is about, I feel like it very much is about the automatic qualifier because every school wants to see as many of their teams advance into the postseason as possible. So as a conference commissioner, it's got to be a little bit challenging trying to balance all those competing interests. It is. Yeah, without question. And, you know, then you have to consider geography, um, academic mission and standards and, you know, private, public, you know, there's so many factors, as you know, that go into those decisions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a critical one. And I think I do think this this six uh, AQ standard will help. Um, we also, some years ago, we passed a proposal for a grace period where if an institution or a conference fell below that minimum, they, they had two years to get back up to it without losing their automatic qualifier. Again, providing protection for conferences, retaining opportunities for student athletes, and making selecting any new members you want to bring in, making sure that you vetted them well and that they truly are a good fit for your conference rather than, well, if I don't get someone by the end of August, we're not going to have the AQ. So I got to, you know, pluck right. whoever's around. Right. right. Um, so again, I, I think that's been helpful as well. Yeah. That's great. Well, Chuck, you've given us a really great overview of where division three is at this moment in time, the challenges, the opportunities, the particular uh, creative initiatives that you're you're creating, I'm really excited about the potential for this mental health uh, proposal that you've put forward. And I look forward to continuing to stay engaged with you about where we're going in the future. Well, I appreciate that. And, and I look forward to further discussions with you too, Karen. I appreciate everything. Thanks, Chuck.